There's a story that uh, I heard one time that uh, I like a lot. It's the story of um, the Moggallana and Sariputta to be when they were, uh, before they became the two um, main disciples of the Buddha when they were young fellows, just having regular fun <laughs> before they got into the Dharma fun. <laughs> So in that story, and I'm telling it as I recall it, because I, I don't think I've read it lately. So there, um, that one uh, day, they're at a festival. It's a festival that is going on on several days, where there is, you know, people dancing in costumes, music, um, maybe things happening with elephants that are, you know. Uh, adorned and decorated and uh, it's, there's a lot of things, beauty and color and uh, music and uh, all kinds of things happening and they're hanging out with their friends and uh, they're having a good time, they're there for f uh, three days, you know, sitting in the um, made up um, estrade, <laughs> here's a little pally for you. made up, um, you know, seats for people to look at stuff during a festival. And uh, they're sitting there and there's this one uh, moment that is a moment that is uh, pivotal, yeah? So there's this moment where they're sitting and it's, maybe it's between two shows. And so the staff, people from the festival are preparing the next presentation. And they're just sitting there and they're both uh, just hanging out silently looking uh, around the crowd and seeing all the crowd sitting and eating and chatting and the elephants moving about and the dancers preparing themselves and and they both at the same time have the same idea that crossed their mind the same insight they both think at the very same moment, one day, this is not going to be anymore. One day, the elephant won't be there, the seats and the people won't be there. All this will be gone. This is very fleeting, this fun that we're having. Could there be something that has not this nature of appearing and disappearing? Something that it would be worth putting, um, getting to know, maybe, I'll say it like this. Something deeper than this pleasure that we're having that is fleeting. So they have the same uh, hit on reality. And that mm, is the ignition of their, um, of their spiritual journey uh, towards liberation, freedom, and a connection with something that is unconditional, that does not arise from a cause, that is not unreliable, unstable, fleeting, ephemeral, in the story, they at some point turned to each other and, did you think what I thought? <laughs> kind of situation. <laughs> and they, it's very beautiful. They go for a while together and at some point they say, maybe we have more chance in splitting to find an answer. So let's uh, take this commi commitment that when we find an answer, when we find something of value there in our search, that we're going to look for each other to share the news. And they go on their way. And the story goes that one of them, uh, you know, hear about the man that is teaching, a teacher, the Buddha. And anyway, they become the two main disciples of the Buddha. So I, I like that uh, moment of insight that uh, maybe you think it's a downer. <laughs> you know, they're having fun in a festival. <laughs> Why not just have fun? Well... <laughs> 
It happens to us too, no? It happens to us sometimes, maybe not as strong, but we're somewhere doing something and suddenly we see, I don't know if the right word is vain or ephemeral, or it's going to make it just for the time it lasts, you know? It's not, it doesn't have the depth, you know? So, when we get on a spiritual path, for most of them, I think what's going to be the ignition is uh, an, an experience of dissatisfaction, an experience of uh, this something lacking or that must have more depth, or an, a strong experience of suffering, the loss of something that was extremely meaningful, maybe. We all in here have uh, our own story of this. But often, for many of us, the, what will bring us on the path is a meeting with some, something of the dukkha, dukkha world. Yeah. So tonight I'd like to talk about uh, the path, yeah? And um, you know me by now, I like a number and a theme. And tonight, it's going to be the, what number could it be? Eight. It's going to be the eight, and uh, the theme is going to be fold path. So I'm going to talk about the eight fold path. It's pretty dense, so gotta keep it light. Um, there's a few books uh, on the on the Noble Eightfold Path. One that is very beautiful from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, and you'll be able to purchase this <laughs> at the end of your retreat. My talk tonight is based a lot on this book that I've read several times. There's another one from uh, Bhante Gunaratana, Eight Mindful Step to Happiness. <laughs> I want to put the full range of, uh, you know, emotions in the talk, you know, <laughs> the laughter, the drama, all of it. So when we uh, engage on a spiritual quest, um, often we, uh, we go around a little bit like shopping. It's like, you know, there's this beautiful s spiritual supermarket, you know, where you can do a little of this and a little of that. And, uh, and uh, it, uh, it, it can be very good for a while, you know, uh, because you make discoveries, things are revealed. Um, you can avoid what doesn't feel so good, you know, and, and, and get a lot of good, good stuff going, you know, it feels great. But that can only la last for a time, I think, because uh, a spiritual path, as we're seeing here now, um, is not like a video game, you know, like it's not that... Although video games are pretty complex, but they have simplicity compared to the human heart, mind, the psyche, and the, and the body. So it's it's uh, it's um, you want to find a path that uh, uh, that you'll be able to walk, maybe for a lifetime that has depth. And so the question arises: How to choose a path? Yeah. And um, and there are four questions or four maybe a requirement, we could say, that one could use to choose a path. So in your shopping, you could you know, put these in your list of things to check you know, when you're shopping for a path, when your friends are shopping for a path. You know, you can, this is good criteria of evaluation of a path. It's good if the path may be... Um, That is the suspense part <laughs> of the evening. 
So if the path um, really is able to name the problem really well, completely, you know, the full range of the problem of uh, being in this human predicament that we find ourselves in, you know, so can actually name the suffering in its entirety. You might start to recognize something as I'm going along here. So that would be one of the first things. The second thing that you might want to check is, um, is if it, this uh, system, we could call it, goes to the, really, uh, the heart of why we're suffering, can really go to the cause, the, the source of the problem. Yeah? And then the third thing that you could uh, check is if, it, um, if it's actually going to get rid of the problem, like really and completely. That it's not just a path that says, oh, you'll feel better, you know, it's going to make you feel better on this path. No, that there's actually going to look at the real deep cause of it and be able to eradicate it completely. Yeah? That would be the third uh, criteria. And the fourth criteria would be that it's actually doable, you know, that it can be uh, walked, realized that it's doable. So this could be the four. Um, criteria that you have there. <laughs> Sounds strangely like the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> Very close to it. And so, um, good. You found your pla- yourself in a good place. <laughs> Because apparently this is what this path is doing. It's really naming the suffering, the extent of the suffering. You know, it's not saying it's the flat tire. The problem is the flat tire. It's also the flat tire, but it's it it names everything. Um, I remember one time, um, actually, I went to see a show of an an English um, company called. um, Forced Entertainment. That was the name of the com- uh, theater company, and they were uh, they were exploring this very thing of um, they were exploring entertainment and the edges of it. What is ed- entertainment and what is not? In the theater, I've been in that world for many years. Uh, sometimes there's these, these things we do. There's a research we do. You know, it's like the theater becomes a laboratory to to. Uh, research something. So in that play, they were uh, looking at entertainment. So one of the things that I enjoyed, the the show lasted for uh, three hours and more. It was kind of ongoing. That was one of the edge you would hit hit at some point. It's like, I think I've been entertained now. (laughs) I need something else. But um, in the show, one of the many things they did, and and one of the first things they did is there's a a young woman who came in front of the stage and she said, I'm very happy you're here tonight. We're going to give you a really good show. We're going to entertain you. And so just relax. You know, don't think about your problems at home. Please don't, don't think about, uh, for example, here's the worst place in the whole of Canada. This neighborhood is the whole pl- worst place to park a car because they almost always get uh, broken into. Don't think about this. <laughs> You know, and, and uh, don't think about uh, the traffic in the city and all the potholes. And, and so she went on for a long time about transportation and all the difficulties of this. And then she went in the realm of um, disease and uh, hospitals, you know, and the world of... And she kept going on and do, do not think about work and, you know, the difficulties that we sometimes have with uh, employee, employers and we can't actually complain because it's so complex and don't think about medical procedure tonight, you know. <laughs> and I was sitting and people actually started going out at some point, you know, like they, they felt... Uh, they didn't like that kind of entertainment. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, they have to be Buddhists, <laughs> you know, to name suffering so thoroughly. <laughs> you know, but then after the show, uh, I was reflecting on it, and I was actually, they named only the first kind of dukkha dukkha that uh, Annie spoke so well about. They left, they, you know, 
maybe I should have called them or tell them, you know, there's, there's two other categories, you know, the, the dukkha of impermanence, that beautiful things that pass and the, the angst that we know it's going to pass or it could pass, you know, and, and, and the whole, the other range of everything included, you know, being in a body, being embodied and all the neutral stuff also. And anyway, so, um, so this path really names uh, everything that is suffering in it, yeah? And it goes to the very core of the clinging or desire, tanha, yeah? And then, uh, and then it says it's possible to actually release completely uh, the clinging and the confusion of the mind and find complete release, yeah? And then there's the path that I'm about to start talking about. And so the Four Noble Truths, you see end with the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, we could say, both start and end with the Four Noble Truths. Because when you get on this path, you have, a, you have an intuition that something is not quite right, and there must be another way. You know? So that's kind of a the beginning of the Four Noble Truths, you know, there's something's wrong with that way of living. There must be another way to be, you know. So that's the start of it. So the Four Noble Truths are right at the beginning of the path, and also the end of the path is a complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths, a complete intuitive, penetrative, felt, known uh, deeply, an understanding of all these aspects, yeah, the, the four of them, yeah. So in his book, um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi asked this question that is interesting. He says, what do you think is more important? Is it the, the doctrine or the practice, the doctrine being the four noble truths, or the practice of the noble eightfold path? What is the most important, the teaching or the discipline? In a way, it's a strange question, but just to put emphasis on what we're doing, what I'm talking about tonight, he says, from his point of view, probably the most important is actually the path. Because the path reveals the teaching, and the path is what is going to make you uh, liberated one day. You know, feel, uh, I want to say, aligned with the nature of things as they truly are. Yeah? So the path is extremely important. Personally, I, the beauty that I see on this path is that it is the means towards... Um, comes to me tonight as reconciliation with the world and seeing through the world and freedom in and from the world. It's the way to it, but it's also the expression of it. Tonight, as I talk about all the different uh, pieces of it, in my mind, it's very clear that it's the way to free the mind, and it's also an expression of a free mind. This... uh, this Eightfold Path is, um, maybe I should name the eight aspects. It's, um, I could use the right, right or wise view. Maybe I will say wise. Wise view is the first uh, one. Then uh, wise uh, intentions. Then wise uh, speech. Wise action. Wise livelihood, uh, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise um, concentration is the eighth one. These can be presented as a wheel with eight uh, spoke, I think you say. Yeah? And they make, uh, that's what we use on the path, we could say. Another way to think about it is a spiral. I like the spiral because every aspect that we bring in 
that we practice with, that we become conscious of, that we engage with, is going to feed the revelation, maybe, of the others. So they're gonna, they're gonna, it's going to be a synergy, you know, that is going to help us uh, ascend, maybe, towards, that's the image we use, and also descend after, to be here, and of service, maybe, and uh, be an agent of, uh, you know, protection and freedom. And another image that can be used is a, a rope with the many strands on it, so that only one strand would break when you, when there's tension, yeah. But that the eight of them together make for a strong uh, cord, rope, that uh, can be of great use. Yeah. <coughs> so maybe that's a two-part talk. So wise view. Wise view is, um, maybe I'll start with wrong view. If there is wise view, wise view is a clarity of vision, something that is aligned with reality. Wrong view is when you take something false to be true, when there's a confusion or mistaken understanding of how things work. So wrong view, it's very, very important. We want to um, highlight this, discover what is our wrong view. And that's what we're doing here. By the way, we're walking the path already. I'm just kind of naming it. Being here doing this, this these few weeks, of several weeks actually, is really completely being on the Eightfold Path. It's beautiful. So we're clarifying the view because the way we view the world, that we're conscious of it or not, often we, we don't know what are our beliefs. It's not clear to us. We just act from them. Wrong view will bring wrong intention, which will bring wrong actions, which will result in suffering. And often we're not aware of our wrong views. And when we sit here, suddenly we <laughs> becomes more and more aware. We become more and more aware of it. It's, it it's, some of it is fire practice, huh? Because we sit in it and we see that something's wrong with the view because I get, I'm all worked up, you know? I'm sitting here, nothing is asked of me. Just sit your butt on the cush for a few minutes and it gets incredibly complex, you know, and difficult, not, you know, problematic. So clearly there's something that is not uh, aligned here. Yeah? And so um, today I was um, talking with um, people in the interviews and or the, in the last few days, I think twice it came in a conversation, this uh, one of the maybe the wrong views that could be in action and unnoticed is the wrong view of um, inadequacy. That I have a... F Somebody corrected me how to say it. There was a kind of a way of inadequacy. <laughs> <laughs> so... I might be acting, a lot of my motivations in life and my moves might be done from a feeling of being not enough, of being inadequate. <laughs> and it's unnoticed, but it makes me make the choices I make and makes me do the things I do and it makes me strive forward and it makes me dream of a different self and it makes me do all kinds of strange things that are difficult for myself, you know, for, for this beingness here. It makes things complex. And it can be very important to actually recognize that ignorance is showing up as inadequacy. The sense that I'm not enough and there's a need for correction. Yeah? One teacher one time told me uh, that one word to describe samsara, the cycle of suffering that we're in, is correcting. That trying to correct, constantly trying to correct this reality, there's a little something missing from me, from the other one, from the situation. This correcting is the problem. Remove that, and samsara, in a way, is gone. Yeah? 
So maybe highlighting the feeling of inadequacy and it makes me want to have things, be in a way, or not be. I don't want to be this one that is lacking. So recognizing this, the wrong views that we're trying to correct here, and it's we're really aiming, like we're going to core beliefs that are unshaken by many other philosophy, the feeling of a separate self that needs to defend itself in the world and that is separate and the difficulties around that. Or the belief in, uh, I'm, I'm not reinventing anything, it's all things we've been hearing a lot in the last few weeks, but the feeling of solidity, of reliability, of stability. The Buddha in one text says, when, when, when you see how shaky the world is, you know, how unreliable it is, something switches. So this is the correcting of the view that might happen. In the, in the wise view, at this point in the evening, uh, you can choose between two, um, two wise view, if you want. You'll have the option to choose the one you prefer. There's one that we could call the mundane right view. If you're interested in, um, in um, creating the conditions uh, for kind of a worldly kind of happiness to be well, for the conditions to improve in your world. And there's another right view or wise view that we could decide to, to choose also that is called, uh, maybe we could call superior or su- supramundane, superior right view. Let's call it like this. Yeah. So the first one, you can listen to me before you choose. <laughs> So one of the wise view is um, the, the mundane right view is related to karma, k- karma. So an understanding that, uh, mm, that what is the English expression I read sometimes that I like a lot the uh, efficacy, efficacy of action, how our actions have an, an efficacy, <laughs> they have, they they bear result. There's consequences is one way to talk about this, yeah? And that there are wholesome uh, roots that will always produce wholesome result and unwholesome roots that will always produce unwholesome results. And this, in this uh, wise view of karma, the important thing is to understand that it's actually not personal choice. I'll make my own unwholesome, wholesome, that it's just in this practice or in this uh, um, doctrine, it's very clear. When actions are rooted in uh, greed, hatred, or delusion, invariably they will produce uh, uh, results that are difficult, stressful, suffering. Invariably when actions are rooted in, uh, in uh, metta or non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion, wisdom and, uh, and uh, metta and uh, renunciation or generosity, invariably they will lead to good result in the future. What I like about this uh, teaching on, on karma is that in our practice, all the attention is put on the, um, on, in the, on the point, point of view of practice, of being here now. All the attention is put on the emission, if I can say, 
not so much on the result, but on the emission, on our practice here. What we put a lot of attention on is not like, why do I, am I in the middle of this? Why, what is, is the result of what? What did I do in the past that I find myself like? It's not this. What we look at is how, what I'm doing right now, how I'm emitting result in the future, for the future. Yeah? So that's, uh, the Buddha says, kamma is action, and for me, action is intentions. And in the regular culture, when you talk about kamma, what is, where do we point? We point to result. This is their kamma. This is their kamma. In this practice here, we change the, the, the object. It's not the result. It's the emission. It's what I'm putting out right now. I'm really aware of what is happening here, what I'm cultivating, what I'm abandoning. This is where I put the real attention. Yeah? There's, a, there's a practice of equanimity that I've done a lot and still do sometimes. Uh, in the same way that in metta we have the phrases and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, there's a phrase that I've repeated a lot for me to reestablish some of the wrong view about this and reestablish the right view and right intention, we could say. As I've said many times, probably hundreds of times, my happiness doesn't depend on the circumstances of my life. It depends on my response. My happiness doesn't depend on the circumstances of my life. It depends on my response. How I am right now with the circumstances is going to have a tremendous impact in the future. We know that. This is what we're doing here. We put a lot of attention. We're not like, why is this happening to me? As it's one of the unponderables, the Buddha said, don't try to figure this out. It will drive you crazy. You cannot know. Because there's not only the law of karma in action, there's several laws in action. Why something is happening, a diagnosis, just to name this. You could say, oh, why do I have that thing happening to me? It's karma, not known. Because there's biology in there, there's uh, chemistry, genes, uh, you know, there's many, many laws that are at play. So it's really hard to find what is caused, caused what. Sometimes there's a clarity we might have, but... Uh, the attention is not so much on the result, but the emission. And that's where we have power. It's in the now, which I find extremely beautiful. I take care of what's happening in this mind-body because I can feel the instant karma of, you know, uh, benevolence in the mind. It's felt immediately, the liberating aspect of it. Yeah. And the rest, I don't. Uh, I have no idea about how it's going to unfold. I, just what I maybe know or believe is that there is a storing that is happening, a storing of energy, and there's an intention of, uh, you know, hatred. It has a. It's stored. It's being stored somewhere. And when the, there's a potentiality, we say a, something is latent there. And when the conditions are right, it's going to rip, uh, rip open. <laughs> could be in this life, could be in another life. Who knows? But the emission is the point of power here. We take care of now. Yeah? So that's if we... Um, if in the wise view, we're interested in a good future, either next week or next life, you choose. If we're interested in a freedom from this cycle, complete freedom, not a good karma, but uh, passing through conditionality, then the attention goes on the Four Noble Truths. Maybe one aspect that I'll name here is, uh, is uh, these five aggregates that I was talking about a few weeks ago. The Buddha says, 
uh, in his description of dukkha, he says the five, you know, um, I don't know the quote, I should at this point, but birth is difficult, you know, aging, death is difficult, being separated from what we want is difficult, being stuck with what we don't want is difficult. And then at the very end of this description of dukkha, he says, and the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So to understand that this experience of being alive now, of having aggregates, has been caused by a wanting to exist, wanting to, is not an easy thing to do. One will need a lot of attention to clarify that, or to even see, experience the wanting to be, the wanting to exist. It's a very, it's a driving force that is extremely powerful. It's said to produce next life at the moment of disintegration of the body. It says that this, this core wanting is so strong that it will lash out another body somewhere. You know, it will be able to grab another one. It so wants to be. And so the culmination of right view is a deep understanding of these truths. So, well, that's number one. <laughs> number two, uh, the second, um, second fold of the eight fold is intention itself. So in a way I've talked some about it mixed in. Uh, and if you remember, uh, Joseph named that, and I did again after talking about the two piles, you know, this kind of unwholesome intention, I just abandoned. And this kind of wholesome intention, I, I feeded. This is basically uh, the understanding around intention there. Intention being the link between the way we understand the world and our actions. That's the middle link there. The way we understand will make us want to do something in a certain way. So that's very important there. The third step is uh, speech, wise speech. I'll talk about this more in two weeks. I'll do a whole uh, talk on this um, before we go back to uh, that aspect of uh, practice being very alive. But there was, um, there was a, just this little thing I wanted to say about um, in wise speech, we have uh, 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 not lying is one of the one of the aspects of wise speech. And there's this little story that I really like, where there's, uh, the Buddha, at some point, with, was with Rahula, his son. And um, we don't know how old, how old is Rahula at that point, but we can let's imagine he's eight, nine years old. And the Buddha, when he was uh, giving his teaching, often there would be an occasion for it. Why would he speak about this? Instead of that, because something would happen either in a question, in a conversation, in a situation. So in this, uh, in this story here, we can imagine that uh, Rahula has told a lie. And now he's with his father. And his father takes a bowl. I'll take a cup. Mm. I think I was supposed to leave a little water in there. Because now, with the power of your imagination... You'll imagine a little water in there. And so he says, look, Rahula, you see the little water in this cup? Yeah, That's as much a spiritual achievement somebody who tells lie has. Just that few little drops there. And then he goes like this. He says, you, you saw how easy it was to remove uh, the water from the cup? 
somebody who tells a lie, they remove all achievements that they have done by doing that. And then uh, he says, um, he says, uh, you see what I do here? Put the cup like this. And uh, he says, well, it's very easy to put the cup like this huh? and nothing can come in. Somebody who tells a lie, that's what they do with their spiritual potential. They shut it off. Not possible to make any progress on the path uh, when you tell a lie. I find it very, he's uh, a good teacher, no? <laughs> I mean, it's not just like drop the water, it's drop the water, see how empty it is, empty the, uh, put the cup down. I can imagine being eight years old and having this being in front, like how it could impact the mind and say, like, wow, I have to be very careful. If you remove, if you change a spiritual achievement by freedom, you know, like something you, you know, this is how much freedom somebody who tells a lie has. You see how any freedom gain is lost? And you see how it's not possible for somebody who tells a lie to be free. Maybe that's a better way to tell the story. Yeah? Speech, uh, speech is an amazing thing. It can, uh, it can uh, give freedom, talking of freedom. When we hear wise teaching, it can liberate the mind. In the text you read this all the time, the Buddha is speaking, and uh, at the end of the sutta, and 500 uh, monks and nuns understood deeply you know, corrected their view completely and were freed by words. Actually, uh, if you were to read all the suttas, you might come with a percentage of maybe uh, something in the 90s, 97% maybe, of the, uh, of the description of awakening for beings happen in a discourse. True speech. Maybe because the speech are recorded, you know, and the individual awakenings <laughs> in the forest are not so well recorded as the discourses of the Buddha. But still, you know, it's a very power. It's just to show how much of a powerful tool it is. Yeah? And uh, it can also break lives, you know, and remove freedom when uh, by telling a lie, by you know, covering the truth. I'm, I'm a spiritual seeker, really into the truth. I want to know reality as it is. And, but suddenly, in my way of talking, I promote myself <laughs> in a certain way that is not exactly true, but I'm defending a certain image that I care about. You know, it's interesting to watch that. So I'll talk maybe more about this later. And uh, the fourth step on the path is, um, and, and they show that as step, but as I was using the, ex the example of the wheel or the spiral, this all works together. And just to, we keep aware of this, huh? this, this is all in action. And also, um, I heard this beautiful talk that uh, Temple Smith gave about uh, right livelihood. And at some point, I think it's him in the talk, he was saying, um, we're on a natural path anyway. Maybe it would be a good idea that it would be wise, you know, because you're speaking, you're having views, you're having intentions, you know, it's all there. It's, you don't have to do this, it's, it's all happening. You know, there's speaking, there's livelihood, there's... A, there's putting effort in things, you know. Is it wise? That is what we want to turn toward, towards more and more, clarify what is wise and do it in this way. But I, I thought it was uh, interesting that we're already on an eightfold path, you know. <laughs> and it's good to make it wise as you're, you're on one anyway, you know. Um, but concerning right uh, or wise action uh, that is made of... And now... Uh, this week, uh, Winnie, last week, Winnie gave a talk on sila. So I'm, I'm in this 
part of the path now, Sila, which has a right speech to it, right action and right livelihood. So this uh, was already talked about by Winnie. Many of the things I'm talking about are all aspects that were mentioned here and, and there. So uh, the three really strong aspects of wise action is not killing or harming, uh, is not stealing, and not um, being careful with our, uh, with our sexuality. In different frames here, it's celibacy in life, it's not uh, harming. Just there, it's interesting to see like, okay, so the Buddha devised this Eightfold Path. Look at what he chose. The most powerful things in our lives, our views, our intentions, our speech, our actions, sexual energy. These, we know that these things are extremely powerful in our lives. So he makes it the Eightfold Path. He highlights these aspects that are extremely powerful. Yeah. So uh, just to touch a little bit on the, on the killing, it's, it's kind of a, it's just something I read one time and this afternoon I was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to bring. I was, I was reading that uh, in terms of uh, killing, there's many kind of requirements for karma to be, uh, um, unwholesome karma to be activated. Is, uh, I was reading that there has to be a being and there's a, there has to be uh, the intention to kill. So if one of them is not there, then it's, it's not breaking the precept. So, so you ha there has to be a being. You have to know that the being is there. You have to have the intention uh, to do it or the plan. You have to actually do it. And then it has to work. So sometimes, just to, if we feel like we've broken a precept because we've, and we find out that, oh, actually, I didn't know there was a being. That's an important thing, you know. Uh, so these, uh, these fives. Also, in the, how, uh, imp how powerful uh, uh, the killing will be in the teaching, it says that there's many things to look at in terms of degrees, maybe I could say it like this is uh, the quality of the being itself is important in this teaching. So the impact of killing an insect is not equal to killing a parent in this teaching. Uh, um, the why also is to save one's life or out of hatred or the how, if it was premeditated or not, kind of things like this. There's many nuances in that. I know for me, eating meat, in the description of uh, uh, the precepts, I'm clean. I don't kill myself. The, it's very strange how I cannot resolve this thing that every time I eat meat, there's something in my heart that is, I'm feeding that system. I'm aware of it. I don't know how it explains it in the, in the teachings. It's, I mean, from the teachings point of view, I'm completely clean, apparently. Or anyway, the way they've been recorded and passed down and the way I, understand it or it's been explained to me, yet I haven't found a complete ease around it. To me, that's something to consider. Another step, are you, how's the energy? Maybe you, you don't know the time, I know it's 8.20. So there's only 10 minutes left of your... Torture. <laughs> so the last of this sila group, these three that form uh, uh, around ethics, is a uh, right um, livelihood. And um, 
for a long time, it was a, a little bit unexplored um, for me. So I, I'd stop at the idea that wise livelihood was around the way I was earning money, or people were earning money, the way they made a livelihood. And now, with the help of some teachings, and especially the talk that uh, Temple Smith gave uh, some time ago, uh, suddenly the whole aspect of uh, lifestyle, I mean, it was already in my mind, but it's been made very much clearer now, that a livelihood we could replace maybe by lifestyle. So it, include, so it means that if you're not working, for example, now you're, you're not on a seven-fold path. You know, it's, there's still an eight-fold path. I think this comes also from Temple. So I'd like to give back the credit to any laughter that <laughs> comes out. But, uh, but uh, this is very beautiful, I think, how the whole... You know, so transportation, consumption, clothes, uh, recreational activities, uh, bring the whole shebang in there. How this can be invited in the process of waking up, of finding freedom and offering freedom. So how our whole life can be of service to disentanglement and freedom. And so are we also waking up in our life to all these aspects, you know, bringing attention to all these different, uh, these different uh, aspects? And there was a few things I wanted to um, read to you of um, kind of subtleties that came. Uh, there's, a, there's a program called the DPP offered by Spirit Rockets. DPP stands for... Um, dedicated uh, practitioner program. It's a program over a few, uh, two years, I think it includes five retreats and monthly homeworks for dedicated practitioner who wants to deepen their understanding of the Dharma. And so on one of the retreats, there was a uh, discussion about uh, right livelihood and some of the things I've heard coming from the practitioner on these retreats, we, we exchange, we talk a lot about the practice. There's a similar program at uh, BCBS also, but um, uh, just the subtlety, the nuances of, of this. Uh, so I remember hearing uh, somebody talking about, um, they were saying, so what about working in a broken system? And they were talking about the health uh, system in America. Maybe they were a nurse or something, and they were saying, What's the right or wise livelihood in that I am actually putting energy in something that is defective, you know? Another person was saying, what about uh, investing money when I know uh, or I don't know how the banks are using the money and what they're investing in and, you know, and this whole system? What, what about this? Uh, somebody was saying, but what about the fact that I'm doing good work that my livelihood is not detrimental um, in relationship to the teaching. You know, I'm not in intoxicants, I'm not dealing in sexuality, uh, weapons, I'm not dealing in uh, the trade of human beings, I'm not working in deceitful ways, you know, but my work is stressful. It's good service work, but it brings stress to me. What do I do with this? How does my work influence my mind states? Yeah. And so there was these questions that uh, came up, maybe offered by Temple. Uh, so questions we can bring is, how is my, and here I would like to open it, how is my work, how is my fun time, play time, how is my consumption impacting others? Considering this, how is my, and again you fill the gap here, work, uh, free time, how is it impacting my heart-mind? And the last question was, um, how can I use my free time, my uh, uh, way to invest money, my, uh, if, 
I have the chance to even do that. Uh, how can, you know, my work, my, how can I, my studies, how can I make it in a way that it serves disentangling the mind-heart. That's the way I want to put it. I could have said, how could it serve my practice? But it might make it a little dry, a little... How can it serve freedom for me and others? These are questions that please do not think about while you're here on retreat. (laughs) 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 But these are important uh, questions, you know, and and uh, and uh, one thing I just want to appreciate, if that's the right word, just now, is the, the complexity of the world we live in, uh, where, and I hear this in the questions in the hall often. What do I do in a situation like this? What do I do with uh, ending life? Was the question that came one day. What do I do? Like all these. What do I do with a relationship? Do I end it, or do I try to salvage it, or whatever? You know, all these and this uncertainty. Uh, and I'm thinking of somebody who's telling me, I can't do this work anymore, but I'm two years from retirement, and I can't do it. But in two years, if I quit now, it's going to have a whole impact on my financial situation. You know, so what's the wise thing to do here? And what I just want to say is, this is the realm we're in. This is the realm of a realm of complexity, a realm of uncertainty. We do not know what our choice will will bring. Is it okay to be in a realm like this? Can we accept that? You know, can it be? Uh, um, yeah, that's what I, I. That's how I want to think about it. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know what this, what will bring this decision that I'm making. Can that be okay? Also, timing is perfect because uh, there's just the last three, which are part of the, uh, they're part of what we call the samadhi, the mind training, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So. Let's, uh, we'll address this another time. And um, how could I finish this thing now? Suba, a nun from the time of the Buddha. My attention is unshaken by joy or pain, praise or blame. I know there is no happiness in anything born from a cause, and I cling to nothing. I follow the welfarer and travel on the great eightfold way. The arrow is out. There is no obsession in my mind, having gone in the empty house, I rejoice. I talked a lot lot about a lot of kind of technicalities tonight. This is a way to explain what we're actually doing intuitively. It's in, it's getting in the bones, it's getting in the heart, it's getting in the mind. It, for some of us, we'll never be able to explain it, but we'll feel it. We'll feel that something is more right, that there is more freedom, that there is a gaining of some ground or groundlessness will we'll f- we'll feel it. That is definitely most important than the actual theory. 
So let's uh, sit just for a few seconds in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.